day and welcome to A Call to Consciousness with author and host Brian McClure. Brian and his guests share their personal stories to empower you in knowing that you too are the difference makers in our world. Now, here's your host, Brian McClure. Oh, I've been smiling lately, dreaming about the world at one. Hi, this is Brian McClure and welcome to A Call to Consciousness. This show is brought to you by the Universal Flag Companies, the universal flag and symbol represent the oneness of everyone and everything. I recently heard ex-President Clinton speak to a group of philanthropists, and he asked a few fundamental questions. I think those questions are very pertinent to us. He asked, what is the fundamental nature of the 21st century world? Is it good or bad? How would you like to change it? And who is supposed to do that? And I'd like to answer, if I may, from the universal flag perspective or from a call to consciousness perspective for all of us. And I'd say for us, for all of us listening, and for 50% of the world, the world is a good place to live. We have all the resources that we need. We have food, clothing, shelter. Most of us have jobs. And we're in very good shape. But for the other 50% of our world, they live on less than $2 per day. They live in a world of lack and limitation. They have everything from genocide to wars to child labor to resources that don't exist. And so how would I like to change that? How would you like to change that? What I would like to see is that we start to remember the oneness of everyone and everything, that we start to expand the awareness of who we are And that we would use the universal flag and symbol to do that because it extends beyond our borders. It extends beyond the indoctrinated beliefs that we've been born and raised with. And it allows us to know that we are interdependent on everyone and everything. So my answer to that is that we are both in a good place and a bad place at the same time. Who is supposed to do that? I say, if you're listening, that every one of us is responsible for that. Every one of us has the opportunity to start to have that call to consciousness and to listen to that inner voice that we have that allows us to expand our awareness, to become more tolerant of other people. And by changing our thoughts, by changing uh, even the awareness that we have about a symbol that represents our inclusion of rather than the exclusion of, we start to change our world. If we don't do it for ourselves, we should do it for our children and for our grandchildren and our grandchildren's grandchildren. You know, we've talked about this before. Many of us believe that we are reincarnated, that we come back to this planet many times. And if we are living in this world right now, and we're part of the 50% that is, let's say, the half that have what we need, my question is this. Could we, could we possibly come back to this planet and have the same gifts that we're given if we don't lift a finger to help the other 50% of our world that lives in a world of lack and limitation? The opportunity to spread the truth of our oneness rests with us. You can visit the Universal Flag website at universalflag.org. Please take an active participation. This symbol is now 
flying in 90 countries, and with your help, we can continue to expand the awareness. Today on A Call to Consciousness, we are very pleased to welcome back the legendary Dr. Raymond Moody. If you didn't catch his first interview on A Call to Consciousness, you can listen at universalflag.com because I'm going to have that archive put up there. Dr. Moody is a world-renowned scholar and researcher. He holds a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Virginia, a Ph.D. in psychology from West Georgia College, and a medical degree from the Medical College of Georgia. His career has taken him from college professor to forensic psychiatrist, from a scientific researcher to a best-selling author. He is the author of 11 books, including Reunions and Life After Life, which has sold over 13 million copies and also has been adapted into a movie. He has numerous articles published in academic and professional literature, and he continues to capture enormous public interest and generate controversy with his groundbreaking work on near-death experience and what happens when we die. Welcome back, Dr. Moody. Well, thank you so much for having me again. Um, I'm really uh, delighted to be with you. Well, it is great to have you here. You know, instead of talking about your call to consciousness, since we have already done that, I'd like to to start asking you some questions that occurred to me. Yes. I know. How did you come up with the phrase near-death experience that you coined in the late 70s? Um, well, you know, there weren't many um, phrases that would do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I originally, uh, being a medical... Uh, being a medical student at that time, I originally came up with a perimortal visionary experience, and that seemed a little awkward. And uh, I could, and obviously you couldn't call them death experiences since, mm-hmm. um, by definition, they did, they weren't dead since they got back. And uh, but we do say. Um, that people are near death, that's a common term, so that was uh, the natural phrase that uh, came up. Although, you know, I've always thought it's a little bit awkward sounding, but uh, nonetheless, it stuck. Now, the people that have a near-death experience actually are pronounced dead many times, aren't they? Well, they actually are. Um, And and, um, the trouble here is that death by the dictionary means the irreversible cessation of vital life functions. Hence, if somebody uh, came back, even uh, if they were in a state of cardiac arrest um, for an extended period of time, by definition, they weren't dead. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, I mean, they got, uh, they got there right, right to the entranceway, no doubt about it. <laughs> I mean, many of the people I've known very well in my life um, were from the point of view of their doctor and uh, and, and the medical personnel uh, dead by the by the criteria that were used. So you they know, had an interesting thing that happens over the course of years is that uh, the criteria for assigning death changes. Like uh, mm-hmm. if you went back to 1890, um, then. Many of the people who live today uh, and and have a full, vibrant, productive lives after a cardiac arrest would have just been called dead and put in the grave. But uh, now we have a technology that enables us to bring people back from a state that not so long ago would have been called death. Mm-hmm. So that's so what, a state what that... What happens is the meaning of the term death stays the same. 
namely the state that you don't get back from. But uh, the criteria we use for assigning that tends to shift with technological developments. And we've had a lot of that. So if death is defined with the absence of clinical detective vital signs, how long does that usually take place before someone is pronounced dead? You have no brain waves, you have a loss of blood pressure, no heartbeat, no breathing, your body temperature is falling. How long do they wait? Yeah, well, you know, that's so highly variable, and it depends on so many things. Um, One is the, the age of the person. You know, it's much more likely that a young person will... Uh, will be able to uh, survive on the whole than somebody who's elderly and frail. Or, for example, if a person uh, is terminally ill and is is, uh, dealing with a chronic uh, illness and, and, um, you know, uh, they've uh, been very sick for a long period of time, then customarily there's no attempt made to resuscitate Mm because very often, you know, people don't want to be... uh, heroic measures taken when they're um, uh, they're dealing with a long terminal uh, degenerative illness. So there's all kinds of factors. Another kind of factor is um, the temperature of the body. And if, for example, you find someone who's been apparently frozen in a snowbank, mm-hmm. uh, then you then the there would be a preservative uh, effect of the the cold temperature on the tissues so that you could be more likely to bring them back um, even after they've uh, been in a state of cardiac arrest for rather long times. But, but you know, we all hear that thing about five minutes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, that's a good rule of thumb. That's a good rule of thumb. But um, that there are other situations where it just doesn't apply if mm-hmm. the person is... Uh, debilitated from a long chronic illness, then, uh, you, you know, you typically don't resuscitate because, uh, number one, it's less likely they will be, uh, uh, they would survive the resuscitation, and also uh, simply because in that case, just most people just sort of reach a point where they say, well, you know, this is enough. I don't want any more heroic measures. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's interesting because there's so much that we don't know. When my father passed on about uh, seven years ago, and he was mm-hmm. 78 years old. He had congestive heart failure and was suffering very greatly in the last couple of weeks that he lived. He was in a, a veteran's hospital, and I had said to my mother that I didn't want to go <laughs> visit him that night because I wanted him to have the opportunity. I didn't think that he would leave if we kept visiting him. He kept hanging oh, on. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I've so, seen that so many times. You know, I I can feel your question coming there because it's I, believe me, it's one I have had ever since I started dealing with terminal ill patients a lot at the Medical College of Georgia back in the seventies, the early seventies, mm-hmm. and um, there are just mysteries about it. There really are. I mean. Um, for example, many times you see a situation where somebody is in a state of obtundation or where they seem uh, they're mainly unresponsive, their heart's still be- beating, they're breathing, and so they're alive in some sense. But, you're, you know, you think, well, well, um, that person is not conscious, and, and uh, why in the world or why in the world are they still uh, 
still functioning like that. And then the long-lost sister from Nebraska comes in and says uh, to the person, well, you know, I'm here. And then they just die as though they had been waiting for Mm -hmm. that person. Um, And then another thing you see all the time is uh, somebody just holding on, holding on, holding on, and... um, the family can't quite tell why, and in, and in, and in many of those circumstances, the the um, staff of the medical facility will will just say to the family, "Well, you know, if you go on and just tell them now that it's all right, they can go on, that you'll be okay." Uh, then you, you know the family goes in there and imparts that uh, message to mm-hmm. the per- person, and they and they die. And then there are those uh, situations like you're talking about that that happened in my family too. Um, to my father, my my dad had been holding on just unaccountably, it seems, for weeks, mm-hmm. and my mother had never left his bedside. She stayed <laughs> there. She had a cot. She stayed right there for all that time. And finally, my uh, <clears throat> sister, I think it was sisters prevailed on my mom just to go out for a little while for lunch. First time she'd been out of the hospital room for weeks. And as soon as she did, my father just turned over and died. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had the sense, we all had the sense that he just didn't want to die when my mother was was there. He, Mm -hmm. I guess he assumed that would be too overwhelming for her or whatever. As it turned out to to be, because uh, although she was in good health at the time of his death, uh, she died 18 months later of, uh, and that you know, I mean that that that's something again you hear all the time. Um, in the same year that my my two parents died within an 18 month period, two of my friends, roughly the same age as me, two in the unrelated men, roughly mm-hmm. my age same age had that same experience that one parent died and then just a few months later unaccountably almost the second parent the broken heart syndrome the broken heart syndrome absolutely or we used to call it giving up the giving up given up syndrome people sometimes you just see them they just give up and uh, in a way that we really can't quite understand they just Mm -hmm. go on and die you know, with my father, it was very interesting because when he did pass on that night, which I figured that he would, he had not eaten in weeks, uh, my mother gave me a call and, you know, I have uh, three other brothers and she said she had to make phone calls. And I had told her before, it was my belief that, geez, dad wouldn't be there if I went and visited him in the hospital. When he was gone, he would be part uh-huh. of everything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my mother said to me, well, I'm going to the hospital. And and I was silent for about 20 seconds because I'm thinking, wow, I made this very clear that I wasn't going, but what does she need from me? And I said, well, you know, do you want me to go to the hospital? And 15 seconds of more silence, and she says, oh, I don't want you to go if you don't want to go. And yeah. fit 10 minutes, seconds of silence, and I say, well, I'll go if you want me to go. And finally she decides yes. 
but don't come for an hour or two because I've got calls to make. Yeah. And so when we get to the hospital, we're locked out of going into the side that, you know, we usually went in and uh-huh. the other door was locked. We were supposed to go in. The long and the short yeah. of it is at least yeah. two to three hours have passed. And as we're walking in, my mother's handing me a grocery bag. And uh-huh. I say, what's this? She says, I want you to put these clothes on your father. And I say, Mom, you know, they're going to put him in a body bag. He's not here. And I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, certainly... He is frozen because his body temperature has dropped, and I won't be able to move him, and I'm, I'm going to uh-huh. prove to Mom when I get there. Uh-huh. When we walk in, he looks great, and it's been hours, and, and the first thing I do, he looks so good, is I walk up and I put my hand on his forehead, and it's, and it's burning up. It's hotter than my hand. Uh-huh. And then I walk down and pick up, and I'm thinking, well, certainly his feet will be cold, and his feet were just as hot as his forehead. So now I sit uh-huh. down in shock, and I'm telepathically <laughs> telling my dad, well, Dad, you can go now. I, I guess you. I guess yeah. you proved me wrong. I don't even know what I'm thinking about. Yeah. You must some kind of energy transfer here, and Mom is praying with her friend. And five minutes go by. That's it. And all of us, I put these clothes on. I'm apologizing to him because he's like a rag doll, uh-huh. and I'm saying, you know, Mom wants you to look good with this underwear when you when you <laughs> when you go to you know the funeral home, and you know everyone is saying, okay, you can go now. I get up five minutes later as we're leaving. I pick up the 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 sheet off of his feet and his feet are freezing i touch his head it's freezing and i walked out and said yeah. wow there's so much more that we don't there know there is so much we don't know you know i mean it's just it became to me um dealing with the terminal ill with um i in my medical training at my in medical school uh, at Talmadge Hospital was a huge hospital that served um, largely indigent patients who just didn't, you know, take care of themselves and um, and in addition all kinds of other patients as well. But we had a large population of indigent people who were who were very 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 sick, and so I dealt with a lot of terminally ill patients in that time and and have continued to do so on a, on a maybe a less intensive level. And like I can feel that um, mystification, if I can call it that, in your voice that I, I have just been just mystified by some of the things I've seen. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things um, that you see a, a, a lot is um, Grandma uh, apparently, you know, just slips into a unconscious state, and uh, her body is uh, racked up with cancer or whatever the illness is. And mm-hmm. uh, everybody's kind of sitting around the bedside for the vigils that I guess you know so many people in the middle who in their in their midlife um, go through with a dying parent or. Uh, dying grandmother or grandfather, and um, but everybody's just sort of uh, sitting around assuming that grandma's going to pass away from this from this state and mm-hmm. that we will never see her conscious again. When all of a sudden one day, and if uh, if you haven't seen this, then you're going to think that poor Dr. Moody is psychotic. <laughs> but if you have seen this, you're going to say yes, and you'll be just as mystified about it. And that is that Grandma will just sit up. And if you if you have 
seen this, you know exactly what I mean by saying that at this point, people seem more alive than alive. It's mm-hmm. like their their heightened lucidity. And she said the the neurotic part of Grandma, if she had one, seems to have been dropped off. And she says something coherent and meaningful to everybody around. And then she just turns over and dies. My dad did that. Of course, I wasn't there, but uh, my um, my son, I think, and my brothers were there. And they said that uh, from the state of being for a couple of weeks, just no communication at all, he suddenly sits up and he says, um, well, I've been to a beautiful place, and every, I'm going to miss everybody, but I'll see everybody again and then he just turned over and died (laughs) now this is a person who was just absolutely antithetical to the idea that there's anything beyond Mm -hmm. death or he wasn't a a believer he was a surgeon and had been a professional military officer too and if you didn't know anything about the personalities of people like that well he had that multiplied he was Mm -hmm. a very tough tough person who didn't succumb to fantasy thinking, but uh, nonetheless, obviously, on his deathbed, had this very profound experience. You know, another thing that happens all the time, and I'm astonished this isn't documented anywhere that I know of, except in some in a couple of my books in which I mentioned mm-hmm. it, and also Plato had observed the phenomenon. Um, as he mentions in his book, The Phaedo, which I, was the first place I ever came across it. Mm-hmm. And that is incredibly <clears throat> Now, these are not nearly as common as near-death experiences, for example. But nonetheless, they're common, That I guarantee that a lot of people listening to us will be able to confirm this. And that is that a lot of t- times people in the last days or hours or minutes of their life, even if, according to their family, they never had any interest whatsoever in poetry, will suddenly start reciting poetry (laughs) as they die, or sometimes singing. Um, A friend of mine who died just within the last week or so, last few days, uh, her... um, Friends had called me, and they were there for her death, and she said, again, you know, that she had been unresponsive for a couple of days, just not singing. And then, as she was dying, just burst into songs, uh, sang a song. And uh, this kind of thing happens. I, I call it the swan song phenomenon. because uh, <laughs> That's a great Plato, name. Yeah, Plato had observed us very well. He he observed or uh, had recorded in his um, work, The Phaedo, that, that Socrates, who had spent his life, at least according to Plato, kind of antithetical to um, music or entertainment, which he thought was kind of frivolous, in the last couple of days of his life when he was in prison awaiting execution started writing poetry and uh, he when his friends asked him about this he said well he had uh, done it under obedience to dreams and visions but then he went on to liken it to the song of the swans the the um, Greeks had a folk belief that just before swans die they sing the most beautiful songs of all 
So this is part and parcel of being a human being and a very mysterious phenomenon. You know, like, how does that work? I, I think, um, you know, we don't know. We don't mm-hmm. know. You know, the Tibetans wrote the Book of the Dead, and, yeah. and Emanuel Swedenborg certainly mm-hmm. was a scientist mm-hmm. who turned around and became a spiritualist, and, and he wrote a lot about death, too. How does that work compare with the work and the studies that you've done? Well, you know, what I observed, as I knew, as soon as I observed it back in the 1965 was the first time I'd ever heard this from a living person. But even at that time, I knew of this as something that was important to the ancient Greeks. Uh, I should explain that um, I'm a medical doctor, um, um, and also I have a Ph.D. in philosophy. I went to the University of Virginia and uh, did my bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. in, a, in philosophy. And I um, just have been fascinated with philosophy uh, since uh, high school and ancient Greek philosophy since I was 18 years old. And uh, Pla- Plato is my favorite writer overall. Mm-hmm. And Plato's Republic culminates in a near-death experience. And I had read that in 1962. Any any philosophy major or anybody who reads the Republic will remember that amazing scene at the end where this warrior, Ur, is believed to be dead. And uh, as his friends are preparing to bury him, he just sort of sits up on, on the funeral pyre and... and um, tells this fantastic story of going into another world. And I had also known that Democritus, the other, another Greek philosopher, studied them. And um, Lucian of Samosota, who's one of my favorite ancient Greek writers I had read in 1964, uh, made fun of these near-death experiences. <laughs> uh, Lucian sort of made fun of any, everything. He was, I, I call Lucian the Mark Twain of antiquity. He was a very funny man. And among the things he made fun of was the, these near-death experiences. Was, well, that, that shows right there that people knew about them, right? I mean, the, the uh, ancient Greeks knew about near-death experiences just as we do, and they were just as much... Uh, fodder for dinner table conversation back then as now, where I, um, uh, what what happened to me in 1965, I was a third-year student in philosophy at University of Virginia, and one of my own professors told me there was a man there at at the medical school, Dr. George Ritchie, who was a professor of psychiatry at UVA, who had had this experience himself, and that's where I, but until then, I had assumed it was something that was uh, ancient Greek, mm-hmm. uh, and that 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 they believed. But um, when I heard that from Dr. Ritchie in uh, 1965, that was what drew it to my attention that this is something that um, that still exists. And, you know, uh, I saw I saw in 1982 that there was a Gallup poll which showed that. Eight million American adults right. had a near-death experience. That's right. Yeah. And one in twenty adults in the U.S. To me, that's a large number. <laughs> yeah, and is that an accurate reflection, in your opinion? Absolutely not. I had um, um, <clears throat> when I started first talking about this was in Greenville, North Carolina, in about 1969 and 1970. And I had I got I got my PhD in philosophy, 
and I started teaching philosophy there and teaching Plato. And um, students would come af- up after class when we discussed the Phaedo. I would raise the question. I said, you know, Plato says here that, you know, when we almost die and so on. And that was a natural opening, and, and people would come up and tell me all kinds of stories. Well, then pretty soon the civic clubs want you to come and the churches and 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 i was immediately impressed that when you go to these civic clubs like the rotarians and the uh lions club mm-hmm. and the um kiwanis and so on uh i would be invited to these these clubs because you know every wednesday or whenever their meeting is they have to have a speaker right so mm-hmm. and as word got around in this town that the there was a you know, professor who studied the, the near-death experiences, I was surprised because it never happened, you know, that I that when I would go to one of these uh, civic clubs, that at least one person, and sometimes I'm in one of these clubs I went to, and there was seven of the men came up afterward and told me that they this had happened to them. So you think and, that's an accurate reflection? Oh, yes, absolutely. Wow. The, the figure that you gave, because... Um, and the the interesting thing about this, doing it at civic clubs and then medical societies, I, um, I talked to medical societies and church groups, and everywhere I went, people would come up and say the same thing, essentially. That is an incredible um, statistic. Yeah, we have yeah. to take a uh, quick break here, but sure. when we come back, our guest is Dr. Raymond Moody. We'll be right back on A Call to Consciousness. Stay tuned. Attention parents and grandparents. The world's greatest children's book author, Brian D. McClure, brings you two books, The Raindrop and The Sun and the Moon, both available at Amazon.com and UniversalFlag.com. The entire family has been waiting for these books. Buy both The Raindrop and The Sun and the Moon by Brian D. McClure, and your children and grandchildren will be inspired, entertained, and educated by the messages and illustrations contained within. For more information, go to www.universalflag.com. The universal flag is a symbol that represents our global community, transcending differences while honoring the uniqueness and commonality of all people. The Universal Flag companies have reached out to over 67 countries because half our world, 3 billion people, live on less than a dollar a day. Brian D. McClure's mission is to spread this symbol globally to inspire and give hope to people in need. Make a donation today to the people who need it most. Help global empowerment prosper through the Universal Flag companies and make a donation now. For more information, go to www.universalflag.com. That's universalflag.com. listening to A Call to Consciousness. Our guest today is Dr. Raymond Moody. Dr. Moody, what are some of the common experiences or stages that people experience when they die? Well, these near-death experiences, um, 
seem to be made up of about, say, 15 or 20 common elements. But that doesn't mean that every element will be in every experience. In other words, um, uh, one person may report two or three or four of these things, or mm-hmm. uh, nine or ten, or fifteen, or sometimes all, uh, sometimes all uh, the full-blown picture. And um, but uh, but basically within that framework, um, it seems to be pretty nicely correlated with. Uh, although not ne- not necessarily so, in, in many cases it seems to be correlated with how long the cardiac arrest lasted. For example, I mean, if a if the cardiac arrest le- went on for an ex- what it seems an extreme length, then generally speaking, the the uh, <clears throat> experiences become more involved. In mm-hmm. other words, they have a higher percentage of these elements, but. Um, the kind of thing that people will tell you is that when their heart stops beating, uh, they often hear, hear, if I can put that in quotation marks, a uh, sensation like a buzzing or a noise, um, and uh, sometimes like music, and <clears throat> that in connection with this, they seem to leave their bodies. They tell us that they watch the resuscitation going on from a point of view up above. They can actually see their own Mm -hmm. physical bodies lying on the bed down below. Um, They tell us at some point uh, they go through a passageway, which they may characterize as a tunnel. And throughout this, they say that in these transcendental parts of this experience, that no matter how articulate they may be, no matter how many languages they may speak, that uh, they just can't put it into words. In other words, that it's indescribable that the experience they have is something that lies beyond the ability of the language that we have to portray it. Mm -hmm. But within that limitation, they say very similar things, that they pass through this tunnel into an incredibly brilliant light that's far brighter than anything that you and I have ever seen while we're alive. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it's not uncomfortable. It's like not like a flashbulb hitting you in your eye. It's more like a, that, that this is a completely warm, loving, embracing, joyful light that they go into that light. Um, and the light, they may see relatives or friends of theirs who have already passed away to be there in the role of a greeting committee, almost. Mm -hmm. Um, They say that they undergo panoramic memory in which every detail of their their life, as they often say, that every event of my life, I've heard people say, was portrayed there around them in a full-color, instantaneous panorama, which they saw everything in 3D, and they say that Although you uh, obviously they have to relate this as though it were a sequence when they're talking about it. They say in the experiencing of it, it wasn't a sequence, but rather that everything was there at once, that literally mm-hmm. they saw everything they had ever done. And um, in that context, incidentally, do not relive the event of their, the events of their lives through the perspective they had when they... Uh, did these actions, but rather 
they empathically identify in this situation with the, those with whom they've interacted. And hence, if you say, see yourself doing a harsh or unkind action to someone else, then you feel the sad feelings you brought about in that person's life. Or if you see yourself doing a kind-hearted action, you feel the good feelings you brought about mm-hmm. in someone else's life. Um, <clears throat> people um, give us a little variation as to how they got back. Some people say that they had no sense of transition at one moment and they were in this light. The next moment they found themselves back in their bodies in their hospital bed with no sense of transition. Others are told, uh, tell us that they were told by someone there, perhaps a relative or perhaps a figure of light, a warm and loving presence. They, they, they mentioned being there that they were told you have to go back. There are things you haven't finished in your life. Your time's not over. And then a third group of people who tell us that they were given a choice, that they were told that they can, uh, they could stay in the light or they could go back to the life they had been leading. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, um, the great bulk of those that I've talked with in that situation have said uh, that for themselves they would rather have stayed in the light, but they chose to go go back always on behalf of someone else. Most commonly, I would say almost universally, uh, they say they had little children left to raise, so they went back for that. Sometimes it's another relative. I remember a woman told me that she chose to go back because her husband was having an alcohol problem and she wanted to help him with that. Or then occasionally people in a helping profession, young people Mm -hmm. in a helping profession who've just reached the point of finishing their training and they say that although they would rather have stayed in the light, they chose to go back to fulfill their um, their desire to, to be in a helping profession. Mm-hmm. But have it's you always ever, on behalf of someone else. Have you ever interviewed anyone that has been uh, pronounced dead longer than Daniel Brinkley? Oh, heavens, yes. I didn't even know that Daniel was... Uh, pronounced dead, dead. But I know that. Um, oh goodness, yeah. I've, mm-hmm. I have um, talked to people who were believed dead for so long that uh, that uh, there's no um, understanding. The first person I ever knew, really, uh, with one of these experiences, was George Ritchie, who was pronounced dead once. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the ward boy begged the doctor to to do it again 11 minutes later because this ward boy in the hospital had never uh, uh, seen a young man of his age die. And so the doctor came back 11 minutes later and pronounced George Ritchie again. And then there was still yet a long time while the ward boy was trying to get the doctor to do something, which the Dr. France, the involved in this case, said he finally just did it because this ward boy was so assistant, uh, mm-hmm. so insistent and injected um, um, adrenaline into George's heart. Yeah. And uh, another woman I, I knew very well um, 
um, became a very good friend of mine was uh, actually her doctor told me you know she had no vital signs for for 40 minutes wow and uh, and the this is a very interesting situation how this came about why he would try and that was um, <clears throat> that <clears throat> he was very close to the family and he had promised the daughter of this woman uh, who was very worried about her mother having surgery that absolutely she would be okay and so he just would not give up and he went on and on and on and on and on (laughs) and for 40 minutes and uh, when she came back incidentally she came back with a laugh was she laughing because they wanted her to come back because of her experience she had had wow and uh, and um the doctor told me, as he had told her, he said, that was the weakest and the best laugh I've ever heard in my life. So, yeah, these things you hear about, there's a five-minute rule or something, oh, that's just, I mean, you know, that is very good clinical medicine and something to keep in mind, but, but there are all kinds of other circumstances, some which we understand, like hypothermia. We understand, you know, that that could be a preservative effect on the tissues, but lots of other cases where uh, there's just no medical accounting. Well, when you get fried like Danion did, uh, well, you know. Well, look, you know, I don't know if he did or not. I have <laughs> no idea about his story to what degree that was real or not. So, I mean, I just couldn't make any assessment about mm-hmm. that. I mean, I love Daniel as a person, but I don't know any... The details of his story to me are rather... I just don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's not one I could comment on. But but more generally, the point of your question, uh, yes, I mean, there are lots of people who are believed dead for what seem like impossible lengths of time and yet come back to vibrant, full life. That's amazing. Say I was born and raised uh, with a different set of beliefs, though, in, in, or have a different uh, uh, end-of-life expectation. You know, I'm born in a different culture. Say I'm indigenous. I'm living halfway around the world. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of any studies that are done on different cultures and what type of near-death experiences? If we have one out of 20, i got to believe that they have one out of 20. Yes. Uh, what you said are were you saying that you were born in an indigenous well, culture? Well, if, if I was, I'm, if I'm just were, saying hypothetically, if I was and I had a different end-of-life expectation or had a different set of well, beliefs. Um, yes, yes, this happens. I, I um, uh, Gosh, over the years I've talked with colleagues of mine from all over. Um, we had a, believe it or not, a Zulu shaman came to visit us back in the uh, about 1993 or 4 I think it was Wow! because of an extraordinary set of circumstances which would take too long to relate but um, then we developed a relationship with him and he he sent us accounts from his people um, which you know are recognizably the same sort of thing I I mean I could just go on and on giving examples but again Mm -hmm. about 91 or so uh, television crew came from Japan and uh, bringing a man who had been very interested in studying them there. Uh, and he said the same to me, the same thing to me. He said, um, 
He said, well, the ones I've heard from the Japanese people are just like the ones you wrote about except for one thing. And he said, that's that in the Japanese experiences, a lot of people see a lot of flowers. <laughs> and and the, the funniest, I mean, this is like one of those things that you couldn't have set it up, or if you if you read it in a novel, you wouldn't believe it. But at that point where he said that, we were standing right beside my door that I'm looking at right now out onto our side porch. And um, at that time, on the wall to the left of that door was a painting that was painted by a friend of mine named Audrey Bray of her near-death experience she had when she was 11 years old showing the flowers and I, I mean you know it was just like that just like one of those things that happens <laughs> once in a time in your lifetime I, he, when he said that I said oh well look at this picture right here on the wall <laughs> and so um, so yeah there there are uh, similarities all over the world and 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 different cultures also have different ways of putting it however I would say that um, the two kinds of um, things that I see that seem to to characterize um, near-death accounts from all over the world seem to be uh, that they are put in the form of a travel narrative, mm -hmm. like going from point A to point B, so to speak, going uh, making a journey, and also the 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 expressed difficulty of um, putting that into a um, into any words that make sense within the culture. So the mm -hmm. ineffability or the indescribability of it, and the attempt to relate it as a journey, seem to be common features all, all over the world. At least the places I've studied. That is very interesting. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, I'd like to ask you about some of the work you've done with past life regressions. Our guest today is Dr. Raymond Moody. We'll be right back on A Call to Consciousness. Stay tuned. Attention parents and grandparents. The world's greatest children's book author, Brian D. McClure, brings you two books, The Raindrop and The Sun and the Moon, both available at Amazon.com and UniversalFlag.com. The entire family has been waiting for these books. Buy both The Raindrop and The Sun and the Moon by Brian D. McClure, and your children and grandchildren will be inspired, entertained, and educated by the messages and illustrations contained within. For more information, go to www.universalflag.com. The universal flag is a symbol that represents our global community, transcending differences while honoring the uniqueness and commonality of all people. The Universal Flag companies have reached out to over 67 countries because half our world, 3 billion people, live on less than a dollar a day. Brian D. McClure's mission is to spread this symbol globally to inspire and give hope to people in need. Make a donation today to the people who need it most. Help global empowerment prosper through the Universal Flag Companies and make a donation now. For more information, go to www.universalflag.com. That's universalflag.com. 
Hello and welcome back to A Call to Consciousness. Our guest today is Dr. Raymond Moody. Dr. Moody, you've done a lot of work with past life regressions. How does a past life regression compare to a near-death experience? Has there been anything that's been similar? Um, well, i got to say also, to put this into context, my interest in that also derives from ancient Greek philosophy. Um, you know, one of the things that I see that's really gone wrong with our society in the, the 21st century is that we're not teaching this anymore. Uh, college students are not getting a, um, a glimpse of the absolutely essential um, nature of what the ancient Greek philosophers did and how, how really it set everything, every academic discipline, all of the, the fields of inquiry and so on that exist stemmed from that. And Pythagoras is probably the only one of these people other than Plato and Socrates and Aristotle that the average person would know, but Pythagoras was the person in about um, roughly 550 B.C. who introduced the notion of, of past life memories into Western thought, mm-hmm. and he himself recounted uh, remembering a number of his past lives, and that was how I got originally interested in this. <laughs> That's interesting. And, and um, back in the 80s, when I was teaching psychology, there was a kind of fad with these, and my students all wanted to try it. So, uh, so I, I was happy to do it with my students. And uh, gosh, I must have taken probably two or three hundred students, I guess through this over the over the years and uh, that I I was doing it and um, I'll just tell you the truth I have no idea what to make of these <laughs> um, you know the mind to me is still a mystery and for some reason there's some people who uh, you know they want to think they've got it all mastered and they have all the answers and uh, I'm just not like that. It's very easy for me to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And what I was intrigued by those uh, past life regressions was how how it seemed to, um, at least the the students' subjective impression was that it, it sort of helped them understand more what was going on in, with them intrapsychically in their current life. In other words, mm-hmm. as, they, as they sort of talked about these scenarios that they had come up with during their past life regressions, they could sort of fit them into things that were happening in uh, their present life. And, and their impression was, anyway, that it, it, it was a little help to their, their quest for self-understanding. And um, I know that personally, um, I, I had some past life regressions. A friend of mine uh, took me through some past life regressions because mm-hmm. I was curious about this and wanted to see it for myself. And, I, and they were very impressive in the sense that um, what I was impressed by was that the imagery was not like the imagery of daydreams, for example, which mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with, or or mental images, it had more of a photographic quality to it. 
and that it was definitely out of my control. I mean, I wasn't, I, I well know what daydreaming is. I'm an excellent daydreamer. <laughs> and when you daydream, you're putting the story together, right? Right. This, these things unfolded just like a movie. And um, whether they have any relation to reincarnation, I just have no way of knowing. Mm-hmm. But what what it really woke me up to was um, up up at this point, I had I have since the age of eighteen been just absolutely fascinated with ancient Greek history. But at my second year at the University of Virginia, I had a bad experience with a very boring professor, I'll just tell you the truth, teaching Western civilization. And I just, the rest of history just sort of at that point came to me a a bore, you know, Mm -hmm. because of that experience. But what this, uh, seeing these past life regressions really woke me up to to um, and my interest in history, which has continued that, that since that time, which was the mid-'80s, I think, was when I was doing those, or early-'80s. And, um, and uh, actually, since that time, I've met a couple of historians who've told me that same story, that it was because of some apparent memory or experience they had had about some previous lifetime that they became interested in history and uh, studied the subject of history. Arnold Toynbee, the great uh, English historian, had that very experience as a young man in Greece around 1919, as I recall it was. He was a young man, man from England just doing a you know, touring around Greece. Mm-hmm. And during that time, he had several episodes which he describes as, I dropped through a pocket in time, to use his um, words. And he saw, in his mind, uh, really saw these events going on. And uh, that was, it was during one of these experiences that he conceived his uh, desire to be a professional historian and wrote, you know, a study of history, which is a wonderful, I think, 10 or 11 volumes. I actually labored through it once. And um, and as I recall, it was 10 or 11 volumes. So um, these experiences can have very powerful effects on people, Mm -hmm. whatever they may mean, which I don't... which. Frankly, I just don't think we have the the logical basis or the rational basis yet to make a firm determination as to what these things are. It's kind of like that uh, unknown that we talked about uh, earlier in the show with my father. There's so much that's beyond, as Kreskin says, our ability to perceive, and uh, it's part of the beauty about being here. In the last minute... It is. The mystery, to me, is that, you know... I've always been baffled at why so many people are afraid to say, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? To me, that's the easy, the easiest thing to say. I don't know. And, and once I solve a question to my satisfaction, which is very seldom, then I just move on to another question. That is a good place to be. You know, uh, we have probably about 30 seconds left, and what I... Uh, would like to do is let everyone know that you can visit Dr. Moody at lifeafterlife.com. Uh, you can see him there. 
Dr. Moody told us on his last show the one thing that he wanted everyone to know and uh, that I want, would like to end this with is that love is the key to everything. Isn't that so, Dr. Moody? That is absolutely right. All these people who come back from this experience of seeing their lives say whatever they had been chasing before, the most important thing we can do while alive is to learn to love. Thanks so much, Dr. Moody. We will see you the next time you're on A Call to Consciousness. We look forward to all our listeners next week. Stay Likewise. tuned. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much. You're welcome.